0: You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Michael Heller and James Saltzman to talk about their book, Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control our lives as a parent you may have heard some arguments in your household related to hey that's mine no it's not i had it first yeah but i was using it right now and it turns out that the reason we have arguments like this is because we all tell ourselves different stories about ownership and about who owns what and why issues about ownership can it be really difficult to resolve when you have a parent and a teenager. Maybe your teenager wants to get a tattoo and they say, hey, it's my body, I can do it. And you say, yeah, but you're living in my house, I'm the boss, I make the rules. Maybe you have a teenager who says, hey, I should be able to stay out as late as I want in the car because I paid for it myself from my summer job. I am really looking forward to speaking with Michael and James today about how ownership works and not only how we can resolve arguments about who owns what with our teenagers or who's allowed to do what, but also so we can prepare our teenagers to understand the complex nature of ownership as they go out into the world. Michael and James, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited to speak with both of you today about ideas from this book, Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. Uh, So this is a very interesting topic. Talk to me about how this came to be. Why is ownership something that you felt could fill an entire book and would interest people?
1: Sure, thanks, Andy. So, uh, Michael and I both—we're law professors, uh, so we we teach a lot of students. Obviously, see a lot of not so much teenagers, so much, but folks who aren't too far too far from that. And one of the things that really sort of excites us in the classroom is when we can get our students just to to see the world differently. It's like ta- it's like taking their heads uh, in Betelgeuse, like moving it around 180 degrees, and like, wow, I didn't I didn't realize that. And we both teach this topic called property law, which is a required sort of core class for law school. And we both like the book Freakonomics a lot. Uh, In Freakonomics, if you look at Freakonomics as an author, really what Freakonomics is trying to do is to teach you some pretty simple lessons of economics, really incentives matter, but they do it through very clever stories, right? So why do sumo wrestlers cheat, right? Why, Why do drug dealers live with their parents? right? Uh, And it turns out that incentives matter. The world looks different once you start looking at individual incentives. Our message in the book is the world looks very different and makes a lot more sense once you start focusing on the different ways that we own things. And so, you know, Michael and I wrote this primarily because we like to teach. This struck as an opportunity to really have the folks who are reading this You know, when they're walking down the street and they see a line, um, or when they're thinking about how to save a parking space, uh, or how to save a seat in an auditorium, what's really going on here, right? I mean, we're dealing with ownership every day, every minute, right? But we don't think about it that way.
0: And I like you break this down in the book into kind of these like six different categories or six different like stories that we tell about why someone owns something or um, why something someone is able to reserve something. And, you know, each one of them is unique and different. And as you get through these six different chapters in the book, you start to uh, understand ownership on a deeper level. And uh, the first one was something that I feel like... uh, parents here causing a lot of grief in households is, uh, I had it first, mine first. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about this idea of
1: first come first served,
0: first come first served in the book. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So this is a really common everyday experience of being um, a teenager, also of being a parent. What people are doing is there, you know, you, you have, you go to the movie theater, for example, and, uh, One kid sits down and says, hey, this seat is mine. You know, I was here first. And some other kid says, no, hold on a second. I had my coat over the back of it. I possessed it. It was mine. And it turns out that what they're both doing, this is kids do this all the time, is they're using these very simple, intuitive stories about what counts as ownership. Yeah. So a lot of conflict uh, turns out to be, you know, from the surface, it seems like, well, they're both just saying mine, 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 mine. But when you dig beneath it just a little bit, What you realize is that they're both telling, the kids are telling different stories about mine. So one kid uses a story, it's mine because I had it first, first come, first serve. Another kid uses a story, it's mine because I possessed it. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. And those are two of what turn out to be just six simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. So for example, just to give you another simple example, maybe for the adults in the room, um, when you're on an airplane and someone leans back into you on the um, airplane seat, you might say, well, hold on a second. That's space in front of me uh, for my knees, for my laptop. That's mine. I had it first, or I possessed it with my knees. And the person in front of you says, no, it's mine because the little button on the seat controls the space. It lets the seat lean back. The seat is attached to my seat and things that are attached to something mine are also mine. So that turns out to be a third of these six simple stories, what we call the attachment principle. It's mine because it's attached to something mine. So principles like first and possession and attachment, it may seem that what you're what people are saying is somewhat crazy or irrational, or they're just being argumentative. But it turns out that what's often going on uh, for adults and also for teens is that underneath the surface of that mind, 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 what kids and grown-ups are doing is telling a story about ownership. They're saying it's mine because, and the because is first or possession or attachment with the airplane seat or labor. I worked for it and therefore it's mine. Or I'm in the family. It's mine because I'm part of this family. That's the fifth. And the sixth is mine because it comes from my body. You certainly know a lot of our struggles with our teenage kids are over issues about control of their bodies? Can they get that weird, you know, can they get the Mohawk, Either yeah. their hair orange, or get the tattoo? Now, those are all questions about a form of self-ownership, which mm. is the sixth and final story that underlies all ownership claims everywhere in the world.
0: And so, as parents, we're a lot of times making decisions like, hey, um, no, you can't do that. No, uh, stop fighting. You, you take it. Neither of you gets it. Um, and it's like we are, I guess, endorsing certain of these narratives over others without like sort of realizing it. And you guys point out that, you know, I, you as a parent or a teacher, we sort of like are rewarding, like if we're going with this first come first serve narrative, then we're rewarding the kid who speaks up first or who is like a little more aggressive versus if we choose one of these other ones, then we're like rewarding different behaviors, I guess. And
1: Well, I mean, not not necessarily. So here's what's interesting, right? If you're a parent, um, who's going to sit in the middle instead of who's going to get the window yep. seat or, or, you know, who's going to get the bigger, the bigger piece of pie? Well, it could be first come, first serve, right? And in, in terms of time, who got there first, maybe it's who got the better report card. Maybe it's who cleaned up their room. All right, the fact is, and this is one of the key messages of our book, is that the rules of ownership are like a remote control. Mm. So whoever controls the resource, whether it could be you know cake after dinner or the window seat oh. uh, or some other thing that other people want, they basically use the rules of ownership to get others to do what they want. And everyone listening to this, I'm sure, has had some experience where, you know, first person to be quiet or, or whatever. You basically use access as the remote control.
2: So yeah, my parents, like one of the things that they hated the most was listening to us. I have two brothers. I'm the oldest of three. Was listening to us squabble with each right. other. Right. <laughs> they would rather just like do anything to avoid having to listen to the fighting. And one of the things we fought over always was who got the biggest piece of cake or pie at the end and dessert.
0: Whatever it is.
2: (laughs) Whatever it was. And it's like a standard parental dispute. Um, And what they realized is, you know, they controlled the pie or the cake. um, And they could use that control, like Jim said. This is, again, one of the core ideas of our book is that ownership works like a remote control. It's a form of social engineering. So what they realized is a very simple rule could eliminate all of the squabbling. Instead of them cutting the cake, they had the kids cut the cake. Mm-hmm. And they, they used the rule, you which know, most parents know, which is you know, whoever cuts chooses last. So as the oldest kid, um, I always ended up being the one to cut the pie, uh, but that meant that I always chose last. Um, but it meant that I learned from a very young age to cut any piece of anything dessert in particular, perfectly into like fair. perfectly equal, <laughs> yeah. absolutely right. perfectly equal slices, because I knew for a certainty that I was gonna get the smallest piece. So it was like super important to cut it exactly, geometrically, identically perfect. And I, that turns out to be as an adult, still 50 years later, that's my superpower, is to be able to cut anything into precise
1: <laughs> thirds,
2: anything. Um, but, that, but again, that, but that skill, the point of it from the ownership perspective, is that what my parents were doing is they were using their ownership they didn't care about equal thirds. What they cared about was no squabbling. And so they used an ownership tool in this case, a division rule to achieve their goal, which was the no-squabbling goal. And the equal thirds was, in, was an artifact. The ownership piece of it was an artifact of that social engineering thing that drove uh, their control of Pi.
1: Michael's superpower is not going to be enough to get him in the Marvel Comics universe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's something that he developed as, as a result of that. You know, that was a, a skill that he learned in order to take advantage of, if you will, this ownership rule. One of the sort of the key tips for parenting, um, I think, is is, is there's, there's, there are two key tips that come out, I think, immediately. Yeah. The first one is to realize that your control of resources gives you the remote control. And so if you are thoughtful about this, you can actually use it in a very constructive constructive way. Um, The second is that when your kids are fighting over something, simply saying share or don't be silly, you know, Johnny gets it or Lucy gets it or whatever, that's not really addressing the kids' legitimate concerns kids' legitimate concerns in many cases will be they're each following a different story. Right. Yeah. And so Johnny might say, look, you know, I had the shovel. I put it down for a second. First possession. Lucy says it's I'm holding it. It's in my hand. Current possession. Possession is nine tenths of the law. And so instead of saying, you know, share it, stop fighting, a more effective way that actually engages the kids is to say, I realize that because you had it first, you think it's yours. Yep. I realize because you're holding on to it, you think it's yours. You can't both have
2: it. Here's what we're gonna do. Yeah, right. That's the punchline. Is for like you know fairly trivial concerns like the shovel in the playground. But it turns out to be the same exact debate mm. where you have to choose among competing stories or make visible that there is a choice among competing stories. That this is not that ownership never defines itself. Um, that same process of making the choice about ownership visible is what drives climate change Mm. it's what drives wealth inequality so it drives some of the biggest issues that we're dealing with as a society not just the sort of immediate ones that we're dealing with as parents but whether you're dealing with from the parental perspective or the you know us as a citizen perspective uh you're still in the world of these same six very simple stories that everyone uses to claim
1: Everything. Yeah. So let me give you another example that, that I think your listeners will, will be able to relate to. And that is um who owns your click stream. Mm. Right. So if you go you do a Google search for, oh, I don't know, um, some video game, right? Uh, what you find is as you start. So 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 andy, what would be a good video game that you think your listeners would all know? Oh, Fortnite. All right, Fortnite, of course, of course, Fortnite. So uh you're Googling something about Fortnite and what's strange is that every other website you go on to you suddenly start something these pop-up ads with something about fortnite yeah. right that ain't a coincidence right <laughs> what's happened is that google or whatever search engine you were using they have tracked your clickstream you know your looks and your likes uh, and they've sold it yeah. to advertisers and they then engage in targeted advertising um, we tend to talk about this as a privacy issue they're invading my privacy But fundamentally it's actually an ownership issue, right? Who owns your clicks? Hmm. Now the uh, the app, the app producers, Google, the others, they're gonna say attachment, right? You left it on my site. It's attached to something I own, so it's mine. Or they may say labor, right? We made this great search engine. You're using it for free. We've earned the right to take your, your click stream. You know, those are, those are good arguments, but we can push back, right? Just like with the reclining airline seat, we can, we can push back as well. Again, we can say, no, self-ownership. My click stream, what I type, that's part of me. And you can't just take that, right? You can't just reach in and take my spleen, right? You can't just take, take my clicks. And what's fascinating is this is playing out right now. So the same stories that we hear on the playground, that we hear at 35,000 feet, That same battle among stories is taking place right now on the internet. And this is worth tens, hundreds of billions of dollars. This is what powers the internet economy. Uh, And so, you know, one of the one of the sort of things I think is super cool about our book is that it shows how, you know, playground struggles over a plastic shovel are, in many respects, identical to the same arguments and struggles that are taking place, as Michael said, with climate change, with wealth inequality, and on the web.
0: One issue that you guys brought up in the book I found really fascinating is about uh, genetic data. Do we own our own genetic data? And if so, you know, um, what are the implications of that?
2: Well, a lot of your listeners um, will have had their family swab a little in their, in their mouth, you know, do a little swab of uh, saliva and then send it into a company like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. There's a whole huge business today of these um, gene decoding companies. So for, for virtually nothing, for a hundred bucks or less, uh, they'll tell you uh, your genetic ancestry yeah. or they'll tell you your um, uh, possible longevity or your mm. uh, susceptibility to certain diseases. Actually, an increasing number of things that you can test and uncover and dis- dis- discover through genetic testing. And, and you can just do it at home. Um, But one of the puzzles that that Jim and I wondered about and also came up with from our students is why is it so cheap? Like actually decoding your DNA, is a pretty complicated process. So why is it so cheap for these companies to offer uh, to you to decode your DNA for 99 bucks? And it turns out uh, that the real real, um, customer of the DNA companies uh, is not you uh, trying to find out your genetic heritage. The real customer is pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies uh, to whom uh, uh, 23andMe, Ancestry.com sell your data. So they basically, uh, what they are trying to do is get, um, you know, people out in the world, you and me, or you know, our kids, to swab and send and stuff. And they want to give us that inf- or the information about something that we want to know about, yeah, right, like our like our genetic um, history. Uh, they will give us that virtually for free because we're not really the, the customer. We're not really the, when it turns out that we, who swab, we're actually the product. Uh, we're what these companies are selling, which is aggregated information about all of us that lets them sell the data to drug companies for drug development or to insurance companies for insurance rate setting. So there's one of those, just like Jim mentioned a minute ago about clickstreams, about who owns your clickstream. And whenever there's any new resource that arises anywhere in the world, whether it's, you know, a slice of pie for dessert um, or that shovel in the playground or the wedge of space in the airplane seat or the clickstream, anytime there's a new resource that becomes scarcer and more valuable, people fight to claim it. They fight to tell one of these ownership stories. And the, da- the gene data companies are telling the story about labor. They're saying the reason your genetic data is valuable is because we put in the labor to assemble it into um, these large uh, databases. So they're asserting an ownership story. Your data is ours. And that's another area like clickstreams where we can very much push back and say, no, self-ownership. No, I had it first. We can tell a different story. But to tell that story, you have to see that uh, ownership of genetic data is An ownership dispute is up for grabs, is a choice that we have to make individually and collectively about what we want others to know about us. It is already the case, and this may surprise some of your listeners, that even if they haven't sent in a a saliva swab, even if they've completely insulated themselves from the genetic data industry, if anybody else in their family, a cousin or an aunt or an uncle or a nephew or a niece a brother or a sister, anybody else in their family has sent in a swab, they're genetically closely related enough that the gene companies can identify you individually, even though you individually haven't sent in any data. So already two-thirds of Americans of European heritage can be individually identified, not from their own saliva, but from saliva sent in by some other member of their family, a relative, where they may not even realize that by sending in by getting their own data, they're also giving away yours.
0: A little bit scary. It seems like there's so many um ways that we are giving away our data these days without realizing it. And um yeah, I found that fascinating and um uh I started thinking about wow, well, I think a few people in my family have done things like that. So I'm like, oh man. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, it makes you realize that you're sort of in it together with your family. Yeah, and the, right. in the world of ownership actually sort of brings you together with your family in ways that may be surprising. And the genetic piece of it is, uh, genetic data piece of it is really an important uh, and hidden piece of the ownership battles around family ownership that people don't realize are going on very much all around them. This is something that Jim and I write about in the book. we have part of a chapter sort of thinking about, sort of trying to, um, educate readers about like what's cool and interesting and challenging about ownership of genetic data.
0: So how did you guys notice or distill out these six um, stories. Where did these? Where did this come from? Is this like based on research or like careful observation
2: or um, or what? Well, Jim and I have. We we both just love teaching. We love working with students, and we've been teaching uh, property law, environmental law, uh, around these uh, around these topics. Both of us for about twenty five years. We've had thousands of students one of the things that's most fun about teaching law students, so students a little bit older than your audience, is that class is really storytelling. So in law school, students read cases. Someone's fighting with someone. And underneath that fight is some wackadoo story. So our law school classes are largely about these wackadoo stories. And then students in class bring up their examples. Hey, this is what happened in my backyard. Like my neighbors planting rose bushes in what I thought was my backyard, do they now own that part of my backyard? And it turns out they might. Um, so all the stories in the book come out of largely our experience, just talking with, listening to uh, lots of students over many years. Um, so, you know, if we just to give another example, we'll often ask them like, do any of you illegally uh, stream uh, Netflix or HBO? Michael, just to cut it, we don't ask if they illegally stream, <laughs> we ask if they share passwords. <laughs> Right, we Jim is right. So we asked, do you guys stream HBO using somebody else's password? Yeah. And all of our students, these are law students, 100% of them say, yes, we do. And we asked, like, how many of you realize that that's illegal? It's actually a federal crime. It could put you in jail. But ha- only half of them realize mm-hmm. it. But half of them do realize that it's illegal and they still do it anyway. Right. So what's going on there? And it turns out that what we sort of uncovered in that question, like what's going on when you're illegally streaming HBO is we discovered there uh, one of the basic uh, sort of principles of ownership design that guides a lot of business today. And especially a a lot of how business deals with uh, young people, deals with teenagers. So what HBO is doing um, is they can find out if your teenager is streaming HBO illegally. Uh, They can find out if they're streaming Netflix, but they choose not to do so. And the reason they choose not to do so, the reason they let um, people uh, stream is that in in the words of HBO's president, they're trying to build video addicts. They want to basically get a young generation, generation of teenagers, in their words, addicted to these services uh, so that later they will become paying customers. So they're using their ownership not to get precisely mathematically one-third equal slices of pie, not to engineer ownership in that way. Uh. They're using their ownership um, to tolerate theft. They are tolerating theft in order to later build a stream of um, potentially uh, uh, fee-paying customers. So HBO is also using its ownership in a way that is targeted, particularly at teenagers and young adults, uh, targeted in the following way they, they, everyone knows they're doing something a little bit wrong. Like my kids know they're doing something a little bit wrong when they're listening to music without paying for it. But the companies that own the music are deliberately allowing that to happen in order to sort of recruit them into Uh the ecosystem of their uh, sort of paid service. That's another very subtle, very powerful, very common uh, form of what Jim and I call, Ownership engineering, in this case, ownership engineering targeted at young people in particular.
0: Hey, we're here with Michael Heller and James Saltzman talking about the hidden rules of ownership. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show.
1: Right. I mean, I used to hear all the time when I was raising my kids, you don't control me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, not the boss right. of me.
1: And of course that's that's not entirely true, right? It's not entirely true. Parents do control a lot of what kids kids do, and so part of the uh, process of, of sort of maturing is to start setting different boundaries.
2: Basically got um, all of us, not just as law professors but also as parents, sort of thinking about the structure of bargaining. Like what is it that makes it hard for people to work things out? Like, What, what Coase's work did basically is focus lawyers and economists and parents on thinking about what works and what doesn't work about bargaining. Ownership disputes don't have to be a win-lose issue. That there isn't really necessarily going to be a right or a wrong. It's very easy as a parent for me, my kids to say, well, I'm, I'm the parent, I, I, I know what's right. And then just to impose that, right. that doesn't always lead to the best. I mean, you can, you can get compliance, but you don't always get sort of growth or understanding or agreement from the kid. And part of what the goal of the book is, is to make visible um, that often uh, what's happening is that the, the kid has a different, equally plausible story. It doesn't mean that their story should win. It just means that part of your responsibility as a parent is not responsibility, but part of sort of a, a, a tool or a, a tip for, in, in the parenting uh, sphere is to be more aware of, more conscious of the competing stories uh, that are driving the conflict. That isn't about a right or a wrong, uh, what it is about uh to, you know, if it might be labor versus first or possession versus attachment. Um, is to sort of be more aware that there are these underlying stories at play. And that the, what those stories uh, allow you to do often uh, is to reach uh, win-win outcomes uh, that wouldn't necessarily be visible from a, you know, I win, you lose, or I'm the boss, you know, you have to. But if you begin to say, okay, you know, we can have uh, J- Johnny gets the bike, but, you know, but does the dishes. So you do begin to see that there can be uh, ways to trade off who has the right and how they have to exercise that right um, in ways that was exactly the core of what Coase taught uh, for economics, but also we we have as a sort of message uh, for for parents.
0: Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.